You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett for a fascinating conversation about feelings, emotions, and thoughts, and the role they play in our lives. Does everyone experience happiness, sadness, and anxiety the same way? As we learn more about the brain, we realize how mistaken we might have been about the mechanics of emotions. Can we eliminate the unhelpful patterns of feelings and emotions holding us back from leading a fulfilling life? Dr. Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist, a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is the author of the books, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made, and has published over 260 peer-reviewed scientific papers. Welcome to this episode of Consciousness is All There Is, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world. If I was to review her curriculum vitae or her achievements, it would take us the whole session, so we better move on. Just acknowledging her books, her latest book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made, and she describes the secret life of the brain. Dr. Barrett has been called the most effective scientist of our time, so what a great (laughs) time to be with you. It's very exciting. Uh, We want to know about emotions about feelings, about the participation of the brain in it, about awareness, about the outer and the inner. You talk about constructivism, essentialism. We can go a little bit in these values also, if you like. But for our listeners and viewers who are not very familiar, can we start with the simple definition of what emotions are as compared to feelings, for example, as compared to thoughts. So humans have thoughts, they have feelings, and they have emotions. And sometimes they get mixed up in our understanding and in people's definitions. So because our audience is very uh, varied in its background, would you be so kind as to enlighten us on this area? Well, thank you for the lovely introduction. I wish I could repay you with a very simple set of definitions, uh, which is what you're asking me for. But unfortunately, no one really agrees. There's very little scientific agreement on the definition of an emotion. And even the distinction between emotion and thought is a very meaningful distinction in some cultures. And is completely meaningless distinction in other cultures. So not trying to evade the question, but I actually think it's better to start with how 
a brain evolved and how a brain functions and in the, you know, whole nervous system um, and set of systems in the body. And then once we understand a little bit about that, then we can start asking questions about, well, what are the differences between different categories of mental events, like thoughts and feelings and actions and emotions and so on, rather than starting off with a definition that might not hold for everyone and and certainly does not hold for many people in many cultures around the world. Wonderful. One thing we know is that all of these happen on the platform of awareness, on the platform of consciousness, which means at some level, something in us is aware of something. It's like a color of awareness, a color of consciousness. Can we say that? Because we've heard, and as you beautifully expressed, the definitions are not so always cut and clear that maybe sometimes emotions are described as subconscious or something that's happening in the subconscious, and then feelings are more of the conscious level. But if we extend the understanding of consciousness, we can say that it's a different layer and different levels of awareness that take different colors. At one point, I'm thinking of a thought, and I call it a thought because it's memory or something. At another, it's a feeling or it's an emotion. But let's go into the journey as you guide us into starting maybe with the brain. That is would be the way to yes. do it. Yes, I think so. And I can certainly give you the definitions that we use um, based on our understanding of how the brain works. And I would say that, you know, your brain's most important job is not to think or to see or to feel. It's to regulate the systems of your body. And if we look, if we, you know, look back into what we know about the evolution of the brain in vertebrate animals like us, um, we can see that brains appear to have evolved around the same time that animals developed senses for the outside world and developed very complex bodies. So right now we have, you know, trillions of cells organized into dozens of systems that all have to be coordinated with each other in a metabolically efficient way or will become uh, sick. And so that's really the brain's most important job. And it's to keep things coordinated and you know your heart, your lungs, your immune system, all these things, that's happening pretty much unconsciously. And for the most part, we don't even, we're not even aware of the workings of our bodies, right? So right now, as you and I talk, and as our listeners are listening, there is a whole drama going on inside each of us that we're mostly unaware of, I would hope. And I feel I have great sympathy for anyone who is aware because it means that you'll be uncomfortable and it probably means you're unwell. And so what the brain is doing is it's making us aware of kind of a summary of that metabolic drama which are simple feelings, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling calm, feeling worked up, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. These are simple feelings which come from the brain's regulation of the body. And the brain makes itself aware of the metabolic state 
kind of like a like a summary or a barometer of that state um, with these simple feelings, which we call mood, or we might call them affect. If we're scientists, we call them affect with an A. These are properties of consciousness in our understanding of my lab's work and our colleagues. We understand affect as properties of consciousness, meaning your brain is always regulating your body. Your body is always sending sense sensory signals back to the brain about the sensory state of the body, which the brain is using, but not making itself aware of those sensations. Typically, it's creating these simple feelings as kind of a barometer of the physical state. And sometimes those occur, those feelings are, are part of episodes of emotion, but sometimes they're just part of thinking. Sometimes they're part of perception, but they're always there. They're always with you from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die. That's wonderful. That means every cell in our body, every aspect of our physiology somehow contributes to the feeling. We can say maybe that in a spreadsheet or in uh, the end of the day, the bottom line of how things are going is summarized into a kind of feeling. So if there is something being hurting, something not right, we might feel it on the sensory level. There is a feeling of pain. There is a feeling of numbness, feeling of cold and, and hot. But on top of it, there is some meaning maybe that is given to all of this that makes us on an, I'm tempted to say on an emotional level, on an affective level, on a mood level, feel something. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And in fact, as you well know, having trained in neurology, there are special names that we give for the signals from the body versus our experience of those signals, right? So if you have tissue damage somewhere in your body, the, the signals that are being sent from your body to your brain are called nociceptive signals, but those are not feelings of pain. Those are signals which you may experience as pain, but you may not also experience it. And part of the experience of pain is the distress that you feel over that damage, right? So it's possible, as many people know, especially people who are well-practiced in, in mindfulness meditation, that it's possible to, to separate the discomfort of a problem, a physical problem, from the distress that you feel. The distress that you feel is, is the affect, is the mood component. Um, and oftentimes when people are taking painkillers and so on, they're actually what they're dampening is the distress that they feel as opposed to the discomfort, which can still linger. I, I just want to say one other thing though, and that is, you know, your brain is always guessing at the state of the body. It doesn't really know for sure, right? It's receiving sensory signals, which are the consequence of some set of changes in the body, but it, the brain doesn't know what's going on in the body. It only has access to the outcomes, to the changes. So it doesn't know what the actual causes are of those sensory signals. It has to guess. And whatever it guesses, that's what you feel, regardless of the actual state of your body. So sometimes you could feel distress and suffering 
because your brain believes there's something wrong when there actually isn't anything wrong. That's beautiful. We know from childhood, there are some studies that seem to suggest that, for example, in early life, children, just when they are hungry, for example, they might be actually feeling pain or something like that. There is an actual very strong physical sensation that they haven't interpreted yet as a feeling or a mood, but they cry because they actually feel uh, what we would call otherwise pain, maybe in, in uh, an adult situation or when they are thirsty or where they need something, even if they want their mother or they want some protection, their reaction is almost a feeling of pain. Do you have anything, research on that? Well, we don't study young children directly, but we collaborate with people who do. And I've written about this. I wrote a, a paper with actually a very well-known, very accomplished developmental psychologist who's very much an expert in children, children's feelings. And I get what I think is fair to say is that children, especially young infants, will cry with an intensity that is linked to the intensity of their discomfort, but they don't know why. They don't, they can't, they can't, their brains are not yet fully loaded, fully wired with the meaning making of, from their culture for them to make a good guess about why they're uncomfortable. But if they're a little bit uncomfortable, they get a little bit fussy. If they're very <laughs> uncomfortable, they might scream bloody murder, right? Their intensity of their crying is really linked to their intensity of their discomfort, but they have no idea why. And also their cries aren't acoustically different for when they're hungry versus when they're fussy or they wanna be hugged or when they're cold or when they're wet. What adults like us do is we, we look at the baby crying and we make a guess. Right. Well, what time is it? When's the last time she was fed? When's the last time he was changed? You know, we make a guess and, and then we try to figure it out. That being said, I think adults are not always so good either at, make, at making a good guess. So when you're dehydrated and you need water, you don't feel thirsty. Often you will feel tired. When you're feeling fatigued, you sometimes might be in need of food, glucose, right? But sometimes it could be that you just didn't sleep very well and you're experiencing that fatigue as hunger. And this happens to me, actually, when I realized it, um, you know, it's funny that you, I don't know if it works this way for you, but, you know, I do research on this stuff and then sometimes I discover, oh, I should be using my own science for my, you know, on myself. Um, but, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling really tired because I was up too late or, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. I'll feel and I'll feel hungry, like as if I need to eat. And but then when I stop and do a body scan, I think, well, no, I'm not, I'm not hungry. I'm tired. And I believe somehow that if I eat something, I will get some energy and that fatigue will leave me. But it doesn't. It's like anyone who's ever traveled internationally knows this, right? You're you're exhausted from jet lag. And your first guess is to drink some coffee. And then you drink a lot of coffee, a lot of tea. So there's a lot of caffeine. And what you end up with is still being foggy and exhausted. But now your heart is racing and you're, you know, you're really feeling jittery. So, but that, that fatigue, that 
that kind of foggy headedness is still there. So even adults are guessing. It's just that we've learned through a lifetime of repeated patterns to make a decent guess, you know, usually a decent guess about what the causes are of those mental features so we can modify how we feel. This is wonderful. I, I guess uh, that's one of the reasons I brought the kids, the children, the growing up, and you beautifully put us in the context of an adult guessing what the child has when the child has a discomfort, which the child expresses in one way, whatever the cause of the discomfort is. And here is the adult guessing. Is, is the child hungry? Is the child thirsty? Is the child wanting attention? Whatever other reasons. So the expression is similar. We are guessing. Now, as if we're transposing this as we grow, we might be getting similar feelings or something that we will get to that. And, and then the guessing continues, as you beautifully said. I'm just summarizing. Uh, when it's easy to see it was between an adult and the child. Now take the child within you and see the adult now guessing about what you're experiencing and giving it different qualities or different names. And this is where I guess the constructivist, uh, that's what you like to call it, part comes. So we're constructing reality. So is the brain predictive or is it reactive? So maybe we can dwell on that. Sure. So I'll just say that just before we leave the topic of children, I'll say that when you are guessing about what the cause is of your child's discomfort, your guesses, if you speak them out loud or you act in a particular way, you're basically instructing the child to experience what you're inviting them to experience. So if they're very fussy and you say, oh, sweetie, don't be angry. You've just <laughs> really, um, the child's not going to learn in one trial on one event, right? But Actually, words are invitations for even very young infants, very young infants. The research shows early as three months, infants start using words before they understand what words mean to learn meanings that will get wired into their brains and that they will eventually start using automatically uh, in a predictive way, as we'll discuss in a minute. So really every time you label or explain a child's state to them, you are instructing them. You're providing learning opportunities. And I don't think we think about it that way very much. It's also, if you and I, Tony, were having coffee and you were explaining to me how you felt about something and I said, oh, well, you, you sound like you were feeling very, you know, full of gratitude there. I just invited you to experience gratitude. I mean, actually, I'm not labeling or identifying your experience. I'm actually inviting you to take these very simple feelings and transform them into actually gratitude or guilt or whatever word it is that you, whatever concepts you're bringing to bear. And I think the important thing about constructivism that people don't necessarily understand is that the stereotype of it is that there's nothing biological about this transformation of feeling of these simple affective feelings into emotions or perceptions or what have you. But 
once you understand a little bit, of course, we don't know exactly how the brain works. We don't know everything we need to know, but we know some things that we can be fairly as certain as we can be about anything right now. And of course, that could change in the future based on new scientific evidence. But the best available evidence right now suggests that every action you take, every experience you have, everything you see and hear and smell and feel is constructed, is made in your brain, in the moment, by reassembling, constructing past experiences, remembering, if you will. So we don't have the experience of remembering, but basically the brain is always reassembling past experiences for the purposes of predicting, anticipating what you're going to see next, what you're going to feel next, what you're going to do next. And these predictions really defy common sense in a sense. I mean, you know, because our our brains are masters of deception. You know, we believe that our experiences are a very good guide to how the brain is making those experiences, but they're not really. Because the brain, your brain is always predicting, not reacting. It feels to us like we see something and then we react to it or we hear something and then we react to it. But that's actually not what's happening at all. Um, what's happening is that the brain is using the past experience to make a really good guess about what's going to happen next. And so it starts to prepare the signals for what you will see and what you will hear and what you will feel and what you will do before those sensory signals come from you know, your retina and your cochlea and all of the sensory surfaces of your body. And those sensory signals are there only to confirm the guest, confirm the prediction or to adjust it, to help select which prediction is the best one. And that has some pretty fascinating implications actually for the nature of our experience. That's beautiful. In our podcast, usually in this consciousness, all there is, we, we discuss often, I like to bring out that reality what we call reality is not just something sitting out there in order to define reality you have to define who is observing what are the conditions of the observation and of course the object but the object by itself is not sitting out there by itself as an absolute reality in a sense because you can see the object from so many different perspectives and react to it from so many different perspectives and from different levels. So when you say, I see a red flower, it's because your nervous system has been constructed to call this wavelength of light red. But uh, it's just another wavelength of light, but our brain can only see that much. So that brings us to that beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder or reality is as you are. And that is uh, the predictive part also of it that we construct. This is where the word construct, I guess, comes from. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So there are many ways to think about the conditions that are necessary for you to see a rose as red. But I think the best available evidence suggests that all experiences are relational, meaning that the physical signal, you know, the wavelength of light that bounces off that rose only has a meaning as red 
for an animal with particular sensory surfaces like the ones that we have in our retinas. Maybe a better example is, you know, there's this old um, puzzle, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, uh, will it make a sound if no one's there to hear it? And sometimes you get someone who's kind of a, you know, an essential, somebody who believes in the essential nature, who'll say, of course, the tree makes a sound when it hits the ground. Who doesn't matter if someone's there or not? But actually, that is scientifically incorrect statement. That what's correct to say is that when an object of any sort of that size hits the ground, there'll be a change in the acoustics. There'll be acoustical, well, actually they're not even acoustics. They're just, they're basically changes in air pressure. That's what will occur. And, but in order for those to become an acoustical signal, you have to have something like an ear, a sensory surface to capture those changes in air pressure and translate them into electrical signals. And then to know that it's to experience it as the, the sound of a falling tree, you have to know what a tree is and you have to know what it means for a tree to fall. And when I say no, I mean, your brain has to be able to conjure this electrical signals to create that experience for you because you've had that experience in the past. So I, I have this wonderful little gift that I use in some of my talks um, where it's a, when you look at it, it's a, a little movie of electrical towers, these massive electrical towers playing jump rope. And you look at it and you can see that it's a set of electrical towers playing jump rope. But never in your life have you ever encountered electrical towers playing jump rope. That's just not an experience you ever would have had before. So how can you, how can you see that that's what's going on? And the answer is because your brain has this miraculous ability to take bits and pieces of your past experience and combine them in new ways. So you've seen people play jump rope. Maybe you've played jump rope yourself. You know what electrical towers are. You can put it all together to have a meaningful experience of something that's completely novel and completely made up. But what's even more really interesting, Tony, is that when people watch this film, they can hear the towers hit the ground. Of course, there's no sound to the film, right? But they can hear the towers hit the ground and they can feel thudding of the towers wow. as they hit their chest. And you're thinking, well, how, how can they feel the thudding in their chest? And how can they hear when they're just looking at a silent film of this crazy, you know, this crazy made up film? And the answer is because predictions, uh, memories, if you will, are not abstract things. They're your brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare you to see, to hear, to feel. And so the, the thudding that you feel in your chest, the sound of the, of the towers hitting the ground, those are your brain's predictions. Based on the last time you saw something large hitting the ground, what did you feel? What did you hear? And your brain prepares those signals as predictions. So the great thing about this video is that it shows you that predictions are not these abstract ideas. They're not abstract thoughts. They are very embodied experiences. Your brain is miraculous. It changes the firing of its own neurons to prepare your experience 
before the sense data arrive. And in this case, they never arrive because it's only visual. That's wonderful. I mean, physicist has taken it also further, yeah. you know, as we know in quantum mechanics and probability and then collapsing the wave function. We don't need to go into that, but this is the discussion about, you know, the moon between Einstein and Bohr. And if I'm not there, would the moon be there? Well, you know, you know who's written really beautifully about this, I think, is um, the physicist uh, Carlo Rivelli. Yes. And he has this relational theory of quantum mechanics, which is, is very understandable to somebody like me who doesn't really understand quantum physics and never will understand quantum physics. And what I think is so interesting is that his relational theory of, of the universe of quantum physics is really, really very, very close to our relational view of physical signals. So, you know, we constantly say to people, listen, you know, your heart rate has no intrinsic emotional meaning. Your brain is making that signal meaningful sometimes as an emotion in an ensemble of other signals that it's, it's weaving together to create an experience for you or for itself. But there's no inherent psychological meaning in any signal, in any movement, in any set of visual signals. You, your brain has to make them meaningful as experiences. And that's very, very consistent with Ravelli's notion of relational meaning in quantum mechanics, actually. That's fantastic. Just to review for our listeners, essentialism was mentioned. And essentialism means that things have an essence, an, a reality on their own, out there, sitting somewhere. And then when we look at them, we are actually seeing their essence or trying to guess their essence. You know, sometimes we don't see it very well. Like, you know, Plato's algorithm of the cave, we see shades, sometimes we see them more clearly, but uh, they are there somehow. There are some things that are there and they exist there. And Well, that's the belief. That's the belief anyways. Right, exactly, exactly. That's the belief in essentialism. <laughs> what Dr. Barrett's telling us is that actually we're constructing our reality. We had discussions with Dr. Hoffman, who actually thinks that everything is an illusion and that we are just seeing the surface value, but we don't want to go there. We're staying with the emotions and the feelings and the impressions that we have. And what we are realizing is that we actually, as Lisa is telling us, we construct that reality in a large proportion of ways. So there is something happening, the three falls, of course, there is something happening there, but the reality that we experience and the way we experience it is constructed based on our previous experience, what has been stored in our brain. And as we said, you know, like when we were children, Lisa just explained to us, somebody gives you a word, tells you something, gives it a name and language. And you start associating a certain set of reactions with that particular name. And if it gets repeated many times, then you're sure this is what it is. So it is really the difference between is it there in essence by itself or is it constructed? And Dr. Feldman Barrett's research has shown that it's actually more constructed than essentially there. Do we want to talk a little bit about the kind of research that leads to this conclusion? 
it's very hard to pinpoint one source of evidence because there are so many different sources of evidence and any one piece by itself doesn't really give you confidence of anything, right? You have to bring all the pieces together. For me, I started to become very interested in the fact that the physical signals that you see that are associated with expressing, let's say, anger or feeling anger, you often see the exact same physical signals in other uh, emotions and even in non-emotional states. So people scowl when they're angry about 35% of the time, but that means they're expressing anger 65% of the time, not scowling and doing other things. I mean, think about yourself when you express anger. Sometimes you cry, sometimes you laugh in the face of anger, sometimes you're stoic in the face of anger, sometimes you might frown in the face of anger. You do all sorts of different things. And then also you, you scowl at other times, you scowl when someone tells you a bad joke. You scowl when you're concentrating really hard. You scowl when you have bad gas. You know, you same thing in, in when we measure people's bodies. Sometimes people's heart rate goes up and their blood pressure goes up. Sometimes it goes down. Sometimes it stays the same. There is not a single place in the brain where that you find a circuit that's always active when when an animal or a human is, you know, when we perceive anger in in someone or they experience anger. We don't there isn't a single circuit there. And so I just became really confused and kind of interested, like, well, okay, there are no physical markers for any emotion, any emotion, any emotion category of instances. They're so variable. And yet it feels very immediate to me when I experience anger or when I perceive anger in, in someone else. So how could both of those things be true What's the under, you know, what's the explanation here? And so that was one piece of evidence that's just descriptive, but it, you know, then, you know, we did research where we invited people basically without their awareness. Um, we sort of prompted them to take exactly the same physical signal and experience it in very different ways. And there's really wonderful research actually, which shows that typically when people are feeling very worked up, they're breathing shallowly, they're sweaty, their heart is racing. The way that they make sense of that is as an experience of anxiety or fear. That's the go-to uh, meaning that people make, and that is the real experience that they have. But if you experience your physical condition as anxiety, let's say right before a test, you can develop what's called test anxiety, which can keep you from passing tests. It can actually lead you to fail courses. You might not even finish college, which has a very serious impact on your future earning potential for the rest of your life, like in the in in hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for a single person. But you can teach someone not to reduce that arousal but that arousal, you need that arousal if you're about to do something really hard, it's like take a test. So you can train people to authentically experience that arousal in a different way to make a different meaning out of it. This is, I mean, research has been done to show this. And 
they can learn to experience um, that arousal as determination. And when they do, when at first, when you're helping someone to, you're teaching them to experience the same physical state, but to have a different meaning, it feels very hard and very effortful, like learning to drive a car. At, remember the first time you ever got into a car and tried to drive a car, it was really hard. You had to pay attention to a million little things. It was very difficult. But then over time, as you practice, you become really good at it. And that's what happens um, with these people when they learn a new meaning for their physical state. They, at first it becomes hard and it feels artificial and not real, but eventually it becomes like second nature, like they're using that knowledge predictively. And not only do they finish tests, but then they can go on to graduate from college which changes their whole lives really in terms of the comfort and you know ability to earn an income and so on. And I think that's really remarkable, but that is very good evidence for exactly what we're talking about. Um, then there's also other evidence which is really cool. Like when you take a glass of water, let's say you feel thirsty and you drink a glass of water and your thirst is quenched, but it takes 20 minutes for the water to make it from your stomach into your bloodstream to your brain, which means your thirst was quenched 20 minutes too early. Like, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened because your brain is predicting, right? And so there are just, there are lots of really interesting examples, some of which are kind of mundane and others which are really miraculous actually to show that the brain is functioning predictively and that it's doing so because that's what's metabolically efficient, actually. And when you can't predict, you feel uncomfortable usually. You feel, um, you can feel highly aroused. I don't mean sexually aroused, but I mean like, you know, you feel your heart is racing, you can feel really jittery and uncomfortable and is an opportunity for learning. And, you know, sometimes when we feel unpleasant, it's not because something's wrong. It's because we're working really hard or we're doing something that, you know, requires a lot of effort um, because we're learning and learning, it turns out, that is learning the stuff that we didn't predict so that we can predict it better the next time, turns out to be somewhat metabolically expensive, maybe not as expensive as, as moving your body, but, but more expensive than predicting, you know, what you already know. That's beautiful. Sometimes when we have a cold, we feel miserable. <laughs> it's just a cold, but we feel miserable, we don't see what we're going, where we're going, if we're ever going to get out of it. But you know what's so neat, Tony, is that when you have a cold or the flu, you feel miserable, right? But you don't. But what do you do? You you lie on the couch and watch TV and drink tea or chicken soup and you take a ibuprofen maybe or a Tylenol, but you don't suffer in the sense that you feel like you're a bad person for becoming infected with a virus. Well, I mean, we're not talking about COVID, but you know what I mean? Like you don't, you know, equal opportunity organisms, they'll infect any, you know, creature with a set of wet lungs. If you get the flu or if you get a cold, it's not because you're a bad person. You don't feel like you're a bad person. But when you have that malaise, when you feel that discomfort and you don't have a virus, it usually comes along with thoughts that you're bad or that you feel unworthy or that, you know, and 
to me, that's a really big puzzle that has to be solved. And I think part of the solution is that to understand that your experience, your thoughts, your feelings, everything you do, they're not built from a couple of signals. They're not, a, they're not, there are not a couple of causes, one or two that are very strong. It's a whole ensemble, like a, a blanket of interwoven signals that you're not aware of. You know, so when we, we ask a question like, um, well, you know, what, what's the cause of a cold or what's the cause of COVID or the answer is, you know, and if I say, well, what's the cause of a cold? This, I used to do this before COVID. I did it after COVID too. I say, what's the cause of a common cold? Is, is a virus the cause of a common cold? And everyone would put their hand up. Yes, yes, yes. Well, a virus is a necessary cause. Meaning you can't get sick without a virus. You can't get a cold without a virus, but it's not an, it's not a sufficient cause. Meaning other stuff also has to be true in order for that virus to have its effect. So your immune system has to be in a particular state. Like there are these experiments that were done pre-COVID. Um, this is at Carnegie Mellon University where they took people, they put them in a hotel room and controlled everything, you know, how much they slept and what they drank and what they ate. And then they placed the same amount of virus into the nostril of each person. And only 20, depending on the study, only 20 to 40% of people developed symptoms. Well, if a virus was the only cause, right? Now, keeping in mind, you know, that there, there wasn't variation in viral load. It was all the same, you know, everyone got the same amount and so on and so forth. But basically it means that other things were also causal, not sufficient, but necessary. So your immune system has to be in a particular state. Your brain has to, which controls your immune system, has to be in a particular state. And those are also really important sets of signals along with the virus that work together to create symptoms in you. So it's, it's simplistic to think that there's a single simple cause for things. And we have to stop asking questions like, what is the cause of some feeling or some thought? And because there isn't a single cause, there are a multitude of very weak factors that each on their own is very weak, but when you put them all together, creates a thought or a feeling or whatever. It's sort of like baking bread. You know, you, you need a bunch of ingredients to get the bread. Um, there, any, leave out any single ingredient and you don't have a very good tasting bread. Even ingredients you can't taste, like salt, for example. You can't taste salt in a bread, but if you leave it out, boy, you can sure tell that something's wrong with that bread, <laughs> right? And so that's the way our experiences work too. And that makes them much harder to study in a scientific way. Beautiful. Um, just to summarize a little bit for our listeners and viewers, you take a brain and you tell somebody under functional MRI, which can study where the blood flow goes in the brain, and you say, think of uh, playing tennis, for example, or think of reading a book or think of riding a bicycle. And believe it or not, you can actually start finding specific changes that actually are signatures of or correspond to, well, it depends on the individual, but within one individual of riding a bicycle versus going to the 
gym versus going on a train or driving a car. And so in a way we can start detecting to some level the activities in the brain related to those activities. And what Lisa is telling us, Dr. Barrett Feldman, is that there is no such a thing for when I'm angry or when I'm happy or when I'm, somebody might you know, be thinking about going to the gym and they'll be happy because it's a good experience and you can see the signature of going to the gym in the brain, but you can't see the signature of being happy Whereas somebody else going to the gym who had a bad experience might be upset or angry or anxious or depressed. And they still have, I guess, the signature of going to the gym without showing us the actual changes that happen in the brain by being angry, happy, or upset. Is that correct? It is. A, it, yes and no. I think I, I would probably make a couple of caveats. So let's take something like uh, a bicycle, right? Or a face, whatever. So let's say you have a bicycle. You show people a picture of a bicycle um, that is red and has handlebars and very big wheels. And then you might show them a picture of a bicycle that is blue and has no handles and, you know, has brass wheels instead of, right? And then you could show them a picture of a bicycle that's rusted and has no wheels at all and, you know, is actually being used in as a piece of art. And, you know, every instance of the bicycle that we showed you would, in the parts of your brain that are representing the low level visual features of that, of those images would be very different for each one. But those low-level sensory differences and even low-level motor differences for moving, you know, particular muscles and so on, that information gets summarized as as it moves to the front of the brain. We call it compression. It's kind of like if you're if people are familiar with like MP3s or the way you would compress signals over over the internet with Netflix or whatever. It's so sort of something similar. So what happens is all the the sensory and motor differences of those instances get summarized away and you're just left with a representation of bicycle. It's not the essence of bicycle, but I think it's a mistake to think that the representation of bicycle is only what those things have in common. It's really that there are parts, if you think of it as a whole brain event, the perception of a bicycle, parts of the signal ensemble will be different and parts will be the same. This is also true for anger. So, or sadness or whatever. Across instances of sadness, sometimes your heart rate goes up, sometimes it goes down, sometimes it stays the same. What you see in anger, in sadness could differ each time. What you, um, you might feel unpleasant in, in sadness, but there are other times when you might feel a, a touch of pleasantness, pleasant sadness, like, um, like when you're thinking of a loved one who you miss and so on. So the features can change the closer the features are to the sensory surfaces of your body where that, that pick up the signals, the more change they will be across instance to instance to instance. But when they're summarized, they're compressed, the signals are compressed. We, the word we use for that in, in neuroscience and psychology is abstraction. Doesn't mean that, that they're 
artificial. It means that you're summarizing all these differences away to get to the function or the the sort of the the general meaning of those signals in a specific instance. And humans are very, very good at this. We're very, very good at ignoring how things look and how they sound and so on and seeing what's what they have in common, even though they look different, they sound different, they might even feel different. Um, and we don't just do this with emotions. We do this with really everything that we, you know, think about um, the fact that a dandelion could be a flower or a weed or a piece of food, depending on, you know, the use that you um, may bring to it. So in some circumstances, a rose and a dandelion have more in common uh, than they, and in other instances, they may not have anything in common at all. Um, but it all, it's all about the, the meaning that you impose on those, on those physical signals, on those objects. And the same thing is true for your heart rate or your, or your breathing rate. You impose, your brain imposes a meaning on those. And, and that's really what emotions, that's where emotions come from. It's also where your thoughts come from and your perceptions of other people and, and so on and so forth. This is great. We have a few minutes left. Let's consider just a little bit, what can we do about it? And you already gave us an idea of first understanding what you're saying, what you have found, your research, in order for the intellect to be open to change which allows us to have the idea that my emotions aren't just something bizarre or it's my fault or something's happening, but they are reactions that have happened because of learning, that learning means the accumulation of experience, what we were told about different feelings as we go through life, and then come to a point where suddenly certain triggers can lead to interpretation because it's an interpretation and a prediction of what's going to happen based on memory and previous experience and all that is there. And then we find ourselves in a certain emotion, whereas we could actually modify that. And as Lisa told us, it might start as a learning process, like driving a car, which might take a little effort. But then as we move on, we were able to take the same input and instead of experiencing anger, maybe experiencing good feeling or indifference or different aspects of emotion. So this can be done. Now, of course, we offer also a technology of awareness, technology of consciousness, which I'd like to share with, with Dr. Barrett. And that is a technology where we say we have to get rid of all these impressions because these are impressions that stay with us to some extent, to whatever extent they're negative in our life. And what we do is transcend those values. Transcend is a term which means to go beyond. That's why the technique we teach is called transcendental meditation. And so this is a real technique that allows us to go beyond the surface level of the mind, which is the waves on the ocean, and go to the consciousness itself. And the example we give is when you wear glasses that are yellow, then you see yellow. When you wear glasses that show you red, you see red. But the reality can be very different. So what we need to do is clean up the glasses. 
Now we call all of these impressions, we call them just for the sake of simplicity, stress. So stress means something has been put on you that is not completely natural, that is not completely reliably real, that is not actually essential in any way, and that it is clouding your perception. So what we need to do is what we call go back to the self, and the self means that most simple state of awareness that is able to see and observe and be in a way a witness to these aspects. So that there is a sense of a difference between myself, my real deep inner self, and all the other things that I go through in terms of emotion, perception, and all of that, and understand that these are to be transcended, to be gone beyond. And gradually with the experience of transcending, which is transcendental meditation in our case, people actually we have seen, and we'd like to maybe submit some of those people to the study in your lab to see how they actually become less dominated by all these preconceived or pre-digested ideas and memories and impressions that make them react in certain ways that are not conducive to feeling good and having good emotions and actually being effective and work in society in a good way because there are emotions that help us to create and there are feelings and emotions that push us away and makes us feel unable to do anything. There's a lot that I could say about that. What I will say is that different people find different paths to changing the meaning of their experience. The idea that there is a true consciousness, uh, flow of consciousness separate from your perceptions is a very Buddhist notion, for example, but the idea that there's a core self, which is the observer, is not a Buddhist notion. And we can look to lots of different meaning systems that people use to change their experience. But I think the point that all of them have in common is that you are the architect of your own experience. And um, that's maybe the biggest lesson to take away. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. There is so much to talk about. Emotions are not only anger and, <laughs> and anxiety and depression. They are also love and relations and happiness. And gratitude and, and awe and compassion. And gratitude. And so yeah. maybe we'll have a chance to talk about all these and other aspects with a great scientist, a great contributor to human knowledge and understanding. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.